morning we pray that you would speak to us. We want to quieten our hearts before you. And we want to have a posture of humility. Teach us. Open our hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Like I just mentioned, we are looking at a, uh, the title for the sermon this morning is Gospel-Shaped Heart. Now last week, we looked at gospel-shaped life and we looked at three things, right? Firstly, a gospel-shaped life. How do I know my life is being shaped by the gospel? The first thing that happens is that you have a greater awareness of God's holiness. The second thing that happens is you have a greater appreciation for who Jesus is, right? Uh, and then there is a reversal of uh, your values in life. And we saw that last week, uh, that as the gospel shapes our lives, this is how the, our life looks like, all right? So today we're going to look at how does a gospel-shaped heart look like? So the question I want you to ask is, yourself this morning is, how do, how do you know the gospel is shaping your heart? Right? How do you know the gospel is working in your heart? How do you know these dynamics are there? How do you know the Holy Spirit is alive and active in your heart? Uh, how do we know this? How do we measure this? Uh, so in Colossians 3, we see a few phrases uh, that's being repeated. And if you notice that we read it in verse 5, Paul says you got to put to death in verse 5. Then verse 8, he says put away something. Verse 9, he says put off something. So put to death, put away, put off in this, all these things that he talks about. And then in verse 9, he again says put on something. Verse 12, again the language of put on. Verse 14, put on something. And again, we see in verse 1, in a similar theme, he says, seek the things above. Verse 2, he says, set your mind above. Right? So he, he keeps repeating these phrases. There's something he wants you to put off, put away. There's something he wants you to put on, something he wants you to set your mind on, set your heart on. Uh, so the, the language here is the language we would call the language of repentance and faith. That's what's happening here, right? It's the language of repentance and faith. And I, and I want to suggest this morning that repentance and faith is like the combustion engine of your heart transformation. A gospel-shaped heart has an ongoing dynamic of repentance and faith. I don't know if you understand about uh, engines. There's this pistons, this fuel comes in, and energy comes out, work comes out, but there's this piston, right? There's this engine that's alive. And if in winter, uh, it doesn't happen these days, but at least when I was growing up, you know, if you're going to start your motorbike, you're going to start your scooter, or you're going to start your car during winter, it doesn't start. So what do you do? If it's a scooter, you turn on the choke or something, or you see people just kicking the motorbike again and again, right? Just to get the engine going, right? Or sometimes you let the car running, you raise the accelerator so that the car engine starts running, a kind of similar view, right? A gospel-shaped heart has this dynamic. It is, it is alive. Repentance and faith is active, right? Uh, that's what defines a gospel-shaped heart. And a lack of repentance and faith in our hearts reveals a cold and stagnant heart. We're going we're to think through this, right? But if there is no dynamic, an ongoing dynamic, a lifelong dynamic of repentance and faith in our hearts, then our hearts become cold. We don't appreciate who Jesus is. We don't see who God is, His holiness. We don't see ourselves for our sin. 
In Mark chapter 1 verse 15, Jesus, when he begins to preach, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And he says, repent and believe the gospel. Right? It is not one time. He's not saying just repent and believe at one point. The, the language there is you keep repenting and keep believing the gospel. Repentance and faith is the consistent pattern of a Christian life. This is not something that's one time. Right? We never stop needing to repent and believe the gospel. So today we're going to think through this. We're going to think through what does this mean? Right? What is repentance? What is faith? Right? How does it shape my gospel, shape my heart? So I'm going to put two things before you. One is what do we repent of? What do we believe? Those are the two things we're going to be looking at. So firstly, let's look at what do we repent of? But like last time, last time one of the things we did is we kind of contrasted between a moralistic, a religious way of life versus a gospel-centered way of life. Okay, I don't know if you remember, we kind of, uh, we talked about how a moralistic life, how does it view the world? How does a gospel-centered life view the world? But today we're going to look at a similar kind of a thing. How does a moralistic or a religious kind of a view look at repentance? How does culture look at repentance? How do we normally look at repentance? Okay. Uh, the firstly, uh, we repent only if we do something really bad. Okay. That's a moralistic view of repentance. If I ask you, what are you repenting of? What do you need to repent of? You'll probably be looking back at your life. You'll be looking at the week. You'll say, oh, maybe Monday. Monday was okay. Tuesday, I know Tuesday was a little bit of thing. I just I lied a little bit to my boss, so maybe that's a little bad. Uh, Wednesday was okay. Thursday, I was a little bit rude to my parents or to your spouse or whatever that is. Uh, a little bit upset, a little, little angry. This is how our language comes. We think about repentance, right? We think of repentance. We need to repent of only things that, we really, that really mess up, that really is bad, right? Otherwise, I'm okay. This is how the world views repentance. Secondly, how does another way we look at repentance? Repentance is something we try to avoid. Okay, repentance is something we try to avoid. It's like going to the boss's uh, office or room or whatever that is, right? Or the principal's office. You don't, you don't want to go there. You only go there if you get caught, right? So we only repent when, when you get caught. If you don't get caught, you don't repent. Okay, that's how the world looks at repentance. That's how we all look at repentance. Repentance is something we try to avoid as much as possible, which means we try not to get caught. Thirdly, how does the world look at looks at repentance or how a moralistic kind of a person looks at repentance and how we all generally look at repentance? Repentance is a duty, right? Repentance is a duty. It is something we have to do. It is something that robs our joy. It is something that's terrible, that makes us sad. That's a horrible feeling, right? That's why we want to avoid it. it it's a duty, right? Uh, and sometimes in our minds, we think uh, if we are growing mature in Christ, we should be repenting less. Aren't you supposed to be overcoming sin? Which means you're supposed to be repenting less, right? That's not true. So repentance is, is, is a duty. If you're a moralistic person, it's, you feel like you should be repenting less and less. And fourthly, and lastly, a moralistic person, repentance is selfish and self-centered. The reason why somebody is motivated to repent is because of fear. It's fear-based repentance. It is, it is not, the motivation is fear, right? It is either to make us feel better. There's something, oh man, 
I feel really bad inside. So I need to repent. I need to say sorry. I need to do something about this. Or we look at God and we feel like maybe he's upset. He needs to be happy. So we repent because of that. Right? If we don't repent, he's not going to bless me. If I don't repent, he's not going to answer my prayers. And that's why we repent. Okay? Repentance is selfish. It's basically about making us feel better. Right? Or, or get something from God. Now, all these ways are not biblical repentance. But if you notice, this is how we do it. This is how we do it. And we wonder why we don't change. How many times we've repented? Have you thought about this? How many times we've repented? How many times we've resolved not to do something? How many times we said, I'm not going to yell. I'm not going to scream. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to do this or that. How many times we genuinely we feel, felt bad about it. We repent. But we don't see any change in our lives. Why? Because it's a false sense of repentance. It is not biblical repentance. So if this is moralistic view, then what does a gospel-shaped repentance look like? Right. Firstly, gospel-shaped repentance is a lifestyle. Right? Gospel-shaped repentance is a lifestyle. It is not one time. It is not something you do when you take communion. Right? It is not something when, when we say examine your heart, that's the only time we examine our heart. That's not how it's a lifestyle. Right? When Martin Luther, when he talks about Mark chapter 115, uh, when Jesus said, uh, you need to repent and believe the gospel. Martin Luther says, Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Entire life should be one of repentance. It is, it is a lifestyle. Right? Now, I want you to think about this. As, as the awareness of who God is, His holiness increases in your life. We talked about this last week. As the awareness of God. It's not that God is becoming more holy. But your awareness of His holiness, your awareness of His beauty, His righteousness keeps increasing in your life. Immediately, the second thing that's going to happen is your awareness of your sin is going to be increasing, which will automatically move you to repentance. That's why it's a lifestyle. If you cease to repent, which means you are not looking at God for who he is, or you are not looking at your heart for what it is. Right? The, more, the more you see God for who he is, the more genuine repentance comes. You want to repent. There is greater and deeper repentance. Repentance is a lifestyle. Secondly, how is a gospel-shaped repentance when you're, when you're looking with a gospel-centered worldview or a biblical worldview? How does repentance look like? Repentance leads to spiritual progress. It is not just behavior change. It is not just managing behavior. Right? It is not just in that level. There's something about the heart that changes. We're going to look at it. Right? But spiritual maturity is not just repenting less. Lack of repentance shows a, a lack of growth and lack of transformation. How we deeply repent and what we repent of shows how the gospel is working in our lives. If I don't have anything to repent, my friends, it's an evidence that the gospel is not working in our hearts. Right? Repentance leads to spiritual progress because it deals with the heart. Thirdly, repentance leads to greater joy. Right? Repentance leads to greater joy. Repentance, when we repent, we enter into the joy of the Lord. Right? We enter into it to love God more. It is not a duty. It is not a chore. It is not something we run away from. It is not something we avoid. We understand that when we repent, we enter into God's joy. Right? Fourthly, 
And lastly, repentance leads to a greater appreciation for Jesus. If, if I don't repent, if it is not a lifestyle, if it is not ongoing in my life, if I don't understand what true repentance is, I feel my appreciation for Jesus ceases. I always feel like I'm okay. I'm okay. Jesus uh, goes to this person called Simon's house. I don't know if you remember the, uh, this uh, incident in scripture. Uh, Simon invites Jesus and then Jesus is reclining there and there's a woman who comes in uh, and, and begins to wash Jesus' feet with her tears. She's kissing Jesus' feet and she is crying and she's washing the feet with the tears. Uh, and uh, uh, basically then Jesus looks at Simon and, and Jesus tells Simon, uh, let me tell you a parable. And Jesus uh, tells this parable because this, this woman, uh, Simon is, is a reputed person. This woman is, is an ill repute, a sinful woman in, in, in the, the side of the culture, in the side of society. So Simon's thinking if Jesus really knew who she was, uh, he won't be letting her touch his feet, right? Then Jesus uh, turns around to Simon. Jesus knows what Simon's thinking and Jesus tells Simon, let me tell you a parable. And he says there's a moneylender uh, who, uh, who uh, lent 500 denarii. Now one denarii is one day's wage, right, approximately. So 500 denarii is 500, wages, 500 days of wages, which is probably, whatever, roughly two years, let's say, right, of wages, okay? So one, so one guy, uh, so the, the owner lent 500 denarii, two years of wages to one person, and to another person, 50 denarii, 50 days of wages. And these guys are not able to pay it back, so the, the owner cancelled the debt. Okay, so Jesus is telling this parable, Jesus says the owner cancels the debt, and Jesus asks Simon, who will love the owner more? Okay, and Simon immediately says, the one who has, was forgiven more, obviously, loves more, right? The one whose wages of two, two years of wages, 500 denied, he should be loving the owner more for canceling the debt. And Jesus looks at Simon and says, this woman loves me more. I've come into your house. You've not even given me water to wash. This, this woman loves me more. What is going on there? Is it, is it because one person is more moral and the other person no? Is it because she's more honest? That's not what's going on. But her repentance is deeper. When her repentance is deeper, she appreciates Jesus more. My friend, you love Jesus. You appreciate, you delight in what Jesus has done when your repentance is genuine. Right? So a true repentance leads to a greater appreciation for Jesus. There's a verse in Isaiah 30, 15 that says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. You would have none of it. Again, we see this dynamic repentance and rest. Rest is again believing the gospel, believing what God has done. Right? Repentance and rest is your salvation. So this is the dynamic, right? And again, just to kind of help you understand the, the distinction or the contrast between moralistic repentance and true repentance. Right? This is something we have to know. So the question this morning is, what do we repent of? Right? What am I supposed to repent of? But what am I repenting? I, I don't understand. I, I look at my life, it looks pretty okay, right? What, what, am, I, what am I supposed to be repenting? Let's look at verse 5. Verse 5 in Colossians chapter 3. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Right? 
I want us to think through this verse a little bit. Paul is calling us not to repent just of our behavior, right? And that's how we always look at repentance. We got angry, so we repent, right? We lied, so we repent. We always repent of our behavior. But Paul seems to talk about something very different here. He's talking about the root of your sin, about something we call here as the heart idol. Now, if you're understanding about, uh, if, you, if you're into, if you understand a little bit about God, yeah, I'm sure I know about God. Right? If you're if you're gardening and stuff like that, you understand a little bit of that. Uh, you see weeds growing everywhere. Right? And you can keep pulling the weeds out. But unless you go to the root of the issue, the weeds will never be eradicated. You, you can never get rid of the weeds. It's always going to keep coming out unless you go to the root of what causes the weeds to come out. And that's kind of the essence that Paul is talking about. We can keep dealing with our behavior, but unless we deal with the root of the issue, what controls the behavior, what is in the, in the depth of our hearts, the behavior is always going to keep showing up. And in this, Paul uses very strong language. Right? He says, put to death. He's calling people to deal with their flesh. It's not just the body, right? He's talking about sinful nature. He's talking about our attitudes. He's talking about the old man, the old self. And here he's actually addressing to the church. He's not addressing to people who don't know Jesus. He's addressing to the church. He's addressing the redeemed. In a sense, he's showing how deep the roots of sin go. Even when you're redeemed, even when you're saved. Right? In verse 7, he says, this is how you formerly lived. This was your life pattern before this. But it is still active in the hearts of the redeemed. The old man, the old self is still active. And Paul says, you've got to fight. You've got to battle. You've got to put to death. You've got to deal with the root. So in verse 5, we see a progression that's happening. We see something from behavior. He talks, starts with sexual immorality, which is the behavior. And he keeps moving deeper and deeper. Sexual immorality, the impurity, the passion, the evil desire to covetousness, which is idolatry, right? He doesn't stop there with covetousness, but he says, all this is an idol. That is the root issue here. The root issue is there's an idol. There's something else that's more important. There's something else in your heart that is driving your behavior. So the word here, we're going to understand this. We're going to think through this, right? The word here, the word for uh, that evil desire, the idolatry is epithumia. And it's commonly translated evil desire. Right? It's epithumia. And, and the word basically means over desire. The word means strong desire. It is, it is a great desire. It's inordinate desire. I don't know, maybe I mentioned this before here. Uh, in Delhi, we have these inordinate desires for things. Right? We... we in Delhi, people love their cars, especially branded cars. Right? Even if it's not branded, you want to put a branded sticker on it, right? If a rickshaw fellow comes and bangs the car, right? I mean, every place, I mean, I, I, I'm raised in Chennai. In Chennai, people fight, I mean, but they'll always keep shouting, but nobody hits each other, right? <laughs> Barking, but no hitting each other. Delhi is very different, right? They love their car. They will immediately hit you. They will... They will shoot you. They will do whatever it is. Right? Don't bang. Don't scratch the car. But the same thing about poverty. The same thing about rape. The same thing about violence against women and children. Nobody cares about these things. 
there's, there's an inordinate, there's a disordered love, there's inordinate. They love certain things more and, that, and it reacts in a certain way. So here, Paul is not just talking about evil desires. Right? And in our own scripture, as you read through this particular usage of word, it includes good desires as well. And Paul is talking about good desires that we make ultimate. Good desires, good things that rule our hearts. Good things that become a strong desire, an over-desire. It becomes an object of our worship itself. And it could be anything. I want you to understand this. Right? And for me, when I began to think about all these things, it really, really, I began to understand why I behave the way I behave. We have these idols. All of us have these idols. Right? It could be career. Career could be an idol. Your work could be an idol. Your family could be an idol. Your children can be an idol. Right? These are all good things. These are, bad. These are all good things. But it can be, it can, it can be obsessive. It can be something that controls us. It can be something that rules us. Achievement can become an idol. Success can be an idol. Wealth or status, power, influence, idols can be anything. It is so varied, it is so deep-rooted, it is so deceitful. And often we are blind to our idols. We are able to see somebody else's idol very easily. You try to You're able to see somebody else. You quickly notice, bro. I know this is this is the problem with you. But we are blind to our idols. That's the thing about idols. It's so deceptive. We will never admit our idols. We will never. If somebody comes and says, Ranjit, this is your idol, I'll be like, take a walk, bro. I'm a pastor. <laughs> we will never admit our idols. How do I know? How do I know what is bothering me? How do I know if I've made something that's good into an idol? How do I know this? How do I recognize this? So firstly, even as we think through this, firstly, we need to recognize we are all made to worship. Okay? We are all made to worship. You are either going to worship God or you are going to worship something else. You are going to worship yourself or you are going to worship something else. Right? We are, we are all made to worship. Right? That's why when you look at Sachin and Shahrukh and all these people, they are not just, they are not just celebrities for us. Right? In India, people worship them. There's something about, there's something about their wealth, or there's something about their power, there's something about their influence, there's something about their status or their skill that we just don't appreciate. We worship. There's something, we are, we are made to worship. Right? And again, we need to understand, we, we, are, we all worship. We know Jesus here. I'm not saying you don't know Jesus. We all know the gospel here. We know Jesus here. But there's something else rules our heart. Something else is number one. And and only when I begin to identify it, I can truly repent and change. Okay? So we were thinking through this. What is this? What is this in my heart? Another way to understand this, you, you cannot break any of the commandments without breaking the first commandment. The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before you. Right? And, and, uh, and Moses in the Ten Commandments list on all these commandments. You shall murder or adultery or steal. You, you can never break any of that without first breaking the first commandment. We saw that last week when the Pharisee or the young ruler, when the young ruler came, he said, no, I've kept all these commandments. And Jesus immediately says, hey, why don't you go sell all your possessions and then come follow me? 
and he went away grieved. Why? Because he worshipped his wealth. His wealth, his money was so important for him. He thought he was fine. Right? But that controlled him. And I want you to think about this. Either, even again, right? think about this. Think about this. Why do we lie? Have you thought about it? Why do we lie? Why can't we just tell the truth? Right? Somebody, and I think it, it's okay. That's the problem with personal illustration. So, I'm gonna, so this happened to me, right? So I was in uh, the salon. So my, this, my, the guy I cut my hair with, he moved, he's moved to another salon. So <laughs> the problem is I know the salon, I know the people there. Akil also, we have the same problem here. So they know me, so they want me to come and cut my hair. So, but last, la last month, I went to the other salon, right? I went and I cut my hair there. So I went back, I took my kids for the haircut. And the guy asked me, he said, hey, where did you cut your hair? <laughs> you didn't come last month. I'm like, oh, I went to Chennai. <laughs> right there, like, that's it over. <laughs> right there, I'm like, I don't know what to tell him. I don't want to hurt his feelings. I don't, like, I don't want to tell him. I went to the other guy. Yeah, I went to Chennai. I went to, I cut my hair in Chennai. That's it, bro. Finish the conversation. <laughs> I was thinking, why am I lying? Like, what, what is going on? I can just tell him. No, bro, you're doing a bad job. He does a better job. I can tell him, right? I like the other guy. I can go to the, I can tell the truth. Why do I lie? Why do we lie? Why do we do all these things? Because we want to look good before others. We don't want to hurt their feelings. We want to look good. For me, looking good in front of people is so important that I'm happy to lie. I'm okay to lie. It's okay. Are you tracking me? Lying is the surface sin. Lying is the behavior. And I feel bad about lying, yes. But you've got to trace it back to what is making you lie. And unless you deal with that, you're going to keep lying again and again. Let's think of another situation. What do we... Why do we criticize people? Right? Why do we gossip? Why do we criticize? Right? Why do we slander people? Why do we put down people? Because in our hearts, we want to feel better than others. We want to feel superior to other people. And so we criticize them. By criticizing them, we feel like we are better. Why do we manipulate? Right? Why do we manipulate? Why do we do these things? Because we want to win. We want to win an argument or we want to influence the outcome. Something else is important for us. Why, why am I harsh and rude with my kids? I can always be gentle, but I'm not. I'm harsh and rude with my children. Why? Because I want to control them. Right? They are not doing what I want them to do. So I'm, I'm being harsh to control their behavior. There's something else that's more important. And everyone has these idols in the heart. The question is, what is yours? Are you able to see your idols? And this is not just one. Right? Are you able to see your idols? Are you able to see this behavior in your heart? And if you're telling me, I don't think I have any idol. It is there. It's just that you're blind to it. You're not able to see it. I'm going to push this a little further. I want you to think about this. this we are not concocting, concocting things. Recently, right? Recently, uh, Cafe Coffee Day CEO committed suicide. Right? Tragic. They tell him he's such an he's such an honorable guy. He's such a good guy. He he is he's a great he's great to work with. He's good manners, gentle, great guy. But he committed suicide. 
Why? Because, because he didn't want to be bankrupt. He didn't want, he didn't want the people to know that he was fighting for bankruptcy. Do you know another guy who was fighting for bankruptcy? Who's that? Yeah. Malia. Did he commit suicide? You know how many bankruptcies he filed for every business he's doing it? Why is it that one person takes his life and another person just keeps living? Because there's something that's important. For this person, respect from other people was deeply important. It even leads them to take their life. It's important. You're tracking me. Respect from other people is not a bad thing. Please, you want, you want people to respect you. But if it becomes the ultimate thing that you're living for, it leads you to sin and to disaster. Think of this. What about, what about honor killings in our society? Have you thought about it, honor killings? Right? When somebody marries from a different caste and uh, we see this in UP and all these places. I mean, this has happened everywhere. I mean, we see people marrying, intercaste marrying everywhere. Why are some people killing their own children for it, whereas others are fine? Why? Because it's important. Their family name, that caste, is absolutely important for them. That they are, they are ready to even kill their own children for the sake of that. You're tracking what I'm saying? Something else is important. Something else drives us. I was talking to Arpita. She just got done from her studies in Japan. In Japan, I heard how when when men lose their job, right? It's, it's, a, it's a big issue in Japan, right? So it's, a, it's an honor-shame culture, just like us, but I think a little more extreme. When men lose their job, they don't tell their family. They will never tell their family. They will get up in the morning, wear the suit, wear the tie, go and sit in a park where all the other men who lost their job sit. <laughs> and they keep looking for a job, but they're sitting there. They don't tell their family at all. And I asked my friend, I said, so what happens if they don't find a job? He said, they, they will never come back home. They don't come back home at all. They just, they just go away. Because for them, that shame, I don't want to be ashamed in front of people. I don't want to be ashamed in front of my family. That's more important. There was a girl who was talking to a counselor and, a, and they were sharing this with me and this person was getting into trouble, was getting into habits, getting into bad relationships, skipping school. This counselor was just telling her, um, trying to deal with her self-esteem and talking to her about how she's God's child. And this person replied, this girl, young girl replied to the counselor. She said, well, I understand I'm God's child, but what good is it if I'm not popular in school? Are you trying to be? What good is this? Popularity. It's important. It's important people like me. It's important I'm accepted. And I will do anything for that. We, we live for the opinion of our parents. We live for the opinion of others. We want people, we live all our lives thinking, what will others think of me? I want them to think that I'm smart and successful. That is driving us. Something else is important for us. Are you, are you able to see this? 
It's only when you begin to understand the depth of the sin in your heart, you understand the roots of the sin, you are genuinely able to repent. Otherwise, you're repenting for all these things and there's no change that happens in your life. I'm going to help you understand this in two ways. Right? How do you know? How do you know what, what is happening in your heart? How do you know if something has become an idol? Okay? One is follow your emotion. Okay? Follow your emotion back to the source. Right? Follow your emotion back to the source. Ask yourself, what makes you angry? What makes you bitter? What, what, what makes you lie? What makes you be afraid or be anxious? Well, why, why is this? Because there's something else that's driving that. That emotion, right? that anger, that lashing out, that frustration. There's something else that's driving that. So usually when you follow your emotion, when there is deep emotion, when you have these things, sadness or whatever that is, you can go back to the source. You've got to think about the source and that's the only way you can deal with some of these things. So you follow your emotion. Second way, you follow your motivation. You think of your motivation. How do I know if I made something good as an idol? You follow your motivation. Right? Let me ask you these questions. You, you follow what rules your heart. What, what do I fear or worry most? I don't ask you. Maybe you're just from college. I don't ask. What do you fear most? What do you worry about? What do you what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of failure? Are you afraid that you'll not be successful? That you will disappoint your parents? What is it? What do you fear most? My friend, that could be an idol in your heart. You're living for that. What about this question? Why do I work hard? Why do I study and work? And why do I do this? Why? What motivates you? Is it because you want to be respected? Is respect from others is the one that's driving you? Or success? Or you want to prove that you're smart? What about this? What, what am I always preoccupied with? What, what do I fantasize about? And think about this, right? If you're... If you're uh, just sitting and you're daydreaming. Think about what are you thinking about? What are you fantasizing? What do you keep looking? What do you keep watching? That's probably something that's ruling your heart. How about this? What prayer, if it goes unanswered, you think you will lose your faith? What is that prayer? What are you asking God and you feel like if, if this doesn't happen, I, I don't think I believe in God. What is that? Maybe that's an idol. Right? Maybe it's success or maybe it's some healing or maybe it's you want to clear an exam or you're looking for a life partner or you want to be successful in a career and you've been praying. You feel like if this doesn't happen, I'm going to walk away by faith. I feel you are worshipping that. That's ruling you. Think about this. What will make you most happy? What will make you most happy? Is it a dream job? Is it a dream life? Is it a dream house? What is it that will make you most happy? My friend, invariably, that's the one that you're worshipping. That's the one that's ruling your heart. Yes, in our head, we worship Jesus. But in our hearts, something else is driving us. So Paul, in this passage, is saying, yes, sexual immorality is this, but you go back to, you go back to idolatry. What is it? And you put to death that, you repent of that, you admit that, and you ask God to forgive you for that. And that is how true change happens. 
I, I found this verse interesting in first john 5 21 when john finishes this episode the very last word he's writing to christians he's writing to the church the very last words he says dear children keep yourselves from idols right so what do you repent of you repent of your root issue you repent of your heart idols all right the second thing what do you believe what do you believe Colossians 3 verse 1 what do you believe if then you have been raised with Christ seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God set your minds on things that are above what are the things that are on earth for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him and I want us to think about this. Right? If you only look at repentance, if you only look at your heart, it's going to be very depressing. It's going to make you pretty hopeless. And that's why there is another side to the coin. It is not just repentance, but you have to believe the gospel. It completes the cycle. If you're only beating yourselves up, that is not true repentance. Again, you got to believe. you got to go back to what Jesus has done. Faith completes the cycle. It is faith in believing the gospel that actually transforms you. Repentance alone doesn't transform you. You can feel bad about it, but that's not going to change you. It is Jesus who can change you. Right? So repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. It has to go together. It has to go together. It is not just one or the other. So the question is, what do we believe? What do we believe? What do we believe about the gospel? You believe about what Jesus has done for you. And it's beautiful here. And Paul is talking about this. And he says, if you have been raised with Christ, right? Where, where was Christ raised? Right? It says there, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Think of this. Christ has been raised to sit in a place of honor next to God the Father. And in scripture, and Paul says, you have been raised with Christ to sit with him. Right? To have that kind of a position, a place of honor. You, think about this, you. You, you and I, we are raised with Christ. How is that even possible? Right? I understand if he gets the place of honor, but what about me? How, how, what am I worthy of that I get the place of honor? And this is where we begin to understand the gospel. How is this possible? It is because Jesus lived a perfect life. My friend, the reason why Jesus came into this world is not just to heal some people and teach some good things. No, he came to obey every law that you and I could not obey. We keep failing. We have lost the standards of God. We've fallen short of standards. And that's why Jesus came to fulfill the law, not just for you, for entire humanity. He lived a perfect life. But instead of honor, instead of having a, a, a applause, he was condemned. He was tortured and killed. He died for you and for me. He not only lived a perfect life for us, he died in our place. He took our shame upon himself. I want you to think about this. And I, and I was thinking about this, right? This, this idea of idea of shame, how he took our shame. Right? And, I, and, I, and I thought about myself, and if, if let's say I, I'm walking on the street and somebody spits on me, right? Spitting is uh, not good, right? But let's say somebody spits on me, that's a pretty shameful thing. I'll be a little ashamed. That's okay, people move on, right? <laughs> what if my dad is walking along with me? And somebody spits on my dad. 
accept. That's an insult. I, that's, I'm okay. That's an insult. What if, what if the prime minister of our country is walking and somebody spits on him? That's a crime. You're trapping me? I, that's, that's, that's an offense. That's, that's an insult of another degree. Think of the Son of God. Think of the Son of God. Think of the one who knew no sin. Think of the King of Kings who took our shame, who was insulted for you and for me. He could have unleashed angels and finished it right there. But he quietly took it upon himself. He died, my friend, he died so that I can live. He was condemned so that I can be set free. He was abandoned so that I could be brought into the family. He was broken so that I could be made whole. This is what Jesus did for you. So you think we are facing insults? Think of the Son of God, the insult he went through, the shame he went through. He went to hell and back because of you and for me. Why? Because so that Jesus can be raised to a place of honor, not just him, so that you and I, when we trust in him, we are raised to the place of honor. We are seated with him. Now, I want you to think about this, my friend. This needs to deeply sink into our hearts. It is not just like a criminal who's being pardoned. We are like criminals. We are hostile enemies before God. We are, we are children of wrath. That was, that's what Bible says. We deserve his punishment. We are like criminals on a death row. Think of this, you're, you're going to be dying or maybe hanged to death and suddenly the news comes that you're pardoned. You're pardoned. You're forgiven. All your mess and all of that, it's forgiven. Think of the joy that comes for this criminal. He's set free. He's able to come back into life and society and he can live and he can work. He can meet his family. Think of the joy. But think of something else that happens. It is not just that. Think of something else. And suddenly this criminal who's set free is being given the presidential medal of honor. Bharat Ratna, Kel Ratna, what are all those Ratnas? Does that even make sense? This is the gospel. The gospel says you are not just pardoned. You are not just pardoned and forgiven. Oh, God just didn't pardon and forgive you. Not. Oh, my friend, he made you his family. You are his. He gave you a medal of honor that belongs to Jesus. This is what he has done for you. And, and Paul says, set your mind on that. Oh, set your mind on that. He says, seek. Seek that with your heart. You seek that. Let it sink in. Let it invade your heart. Let it captivate. Let that be your identity. Let that be what defines you. Right? This is the gospel and we are called to believe the gospel every moment. The reason why we sin is because we forget the gospel. The reason why we lash out, we are angry, we are bitter, we are angry, is because we forget what Jesus has done for us. And I love verse 3. Verse 3 says, you are hidden in Christ. I love that image. You are hidden, my friends, you are hidden. Your identity is hidden. You are secure. Think of this, this, this bulletproof vehicle or whatever. It doesn't matter what bullets come, what, what goes on around us. You are secure. You're secure. You're, you're secure from any fear. You're secure from any attack. In the midst of trial or suffering or insult or ridicule or rejection or failure, you will not lose your self-respect. You will not lose your self-esteem. You will not lose your, lose your approval or acceptance. Oh, you are hidden in Christ. Nothing can shake you. 
You can live your life with grace and poise. You don't have to react. There's something beautiful that happens when you understand who you are to Christ. My friend, true repentance leads to an appreciation for Jesus and believing the gospel. And believing the gospel leads you to true repentance. And that's what worship is. What Jesus did for you melts your heart. You say, Lord, need you more. You want to repent deeply. You want to know your sin deeply. You want to address these areas deeply because you want to run and hide in Christ. The gospel-shaped heart genuinely repents. It's a lifestyle. It's an ongoing dynamic. And not only genuinely repents, it greatly delights in the gospel. A gospel-shaped heart is honest about sin, but not just honest about sin, but it is in awe of the grace of God. A gospel-shaped heart is, is, sees how much it costs Jesus to pay for our sin, but not just how much it costs him, but it also explodes with gratitude and joy for what he has done for you. My friend, this is how a gospel-shaped heart looks like. This is the dynamic. Would you say, Lord, help me. Let's pray. Even this morning, would you would you come before him and would you say, Lord, I, I need you more in my life. I need you to show my heart. I, my heart is deceptive. Or maybe some of you have feel like you've lost the joy of your salvation. Maybe some of you feel like this is this is a duty. It is like a chore, it's like a work. My friend, would you look into your heart? And would you preach the gospel to yourself? Would you remind your heart what Jesus has done? Would you understand how much you are lavishly loved and how precious you are to him? And it is with that confidence, it is with that assurance, you can come before me and say, Lord, I, help me to see my sin. Help me to admit my sin. Help me not to defend. Help me not to blame. Help me not to pass the buck to somebody else, help me to admit who I really am so that I will appreciate who you really are. Father, we thank you for what you have done in Christ. We are so grateful. We are nothing without that. Give us a deeper appreciation. Give us a deeper insight into who you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.